All right, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18 for our sermon text today. We're going to read from chapters 18 and 19, a selection of verses. Uh, If you have the Black Pew Bible, you can find this on page 251, 251. Uh, Last week, we saw the tragedy of Absalom's conspiracy to take over the kingdom from his father, David. And that led to David's exile from Israel. He had to take the long, shameful sad, mournful walk out of Jerusalem, which was a city that he had built, out into the desert, way across the Jordan River where he would hide from his son. Well, today we're going to read about the battle that ended the conspiracy, the battle that ended Absalom's conspiracy. And so I'll begin at 18.1, and you can follow in the bulletin uh, to, uh, the verses that I'm going to read from these two chapters. It's a little bit of a medley today of verses. This is the word of God. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set uh, over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at at the side of the gate, while all the army marched by by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that uh, that that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. 
Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and if all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. I, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, there are a lot of battles in history, a lot of wars that you can read about. Uh, I like reading history, especially about war. I like watching movies about great battles. But I have to say, I've never really read about a battle that was more dramatic than this one. This battle has more drama in it than any I've ever seen anywhere in all of history. Uh, in the verses that we read, we read about 28 verses, kind of a long reading. Only three of the verses, that's chapter 18, verses 6 through 8, are actually about the fighting. Only three out of 28 verses. The rest of the story of the battle focuses on the people involved the main characters who were fighting. And specifically, it gives us a view into what they are struggling with internally as the battle rages. And they're, they're struggling over a very important moral and spiritual question that I want to, to talk to you about today because I think it's not only the question of this passage. In some ways, it's the question of the whole Bible. It's this question. How can you balance justice and mercy? That's the question. 
how can justice, that is standing for what is right, opposing what is wrong, making sure the right is done, how can that be balanced with mercy, trying to love and forgive and reconcile with people? Can there even be a balance between those two things? Everybody in the story, Joab, David, the Cushite, everyone is struggling with that question. And the scriptures tell us that God himself deals with that question in the gospel. And so look at your bulletin. I want to show you three things today. Uh, First of all, I want to show you that this is a persistent dilemma. We all struggle with the same tension between justice and mercy. Secondly, I want to show you how human beings have tried to solve it. We'll see a couple examples of that in the story. Uh, And then finally, we want to look at how God solves it forever. What God does to sum up and end this dilemma for all time. Uh, So first of all, let's look at the dilemma itself. It's very persistent. Everybody struggles with it. Look at how David does. In chapter 18, verses 1 to 9, you see a contrast between what David does and what David says. I want you to observe that. What he does and what he says are at odds. Okay, what's David doing? It says, David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Uh, David is doing what? He's building an army. And it's not a small army. He has to have not just one commander, but commanders. And those commanders, plural, are overseeing some of them thousands of men. Some of the commanders are overseeing hundreds of men. So we're talking about a very large military force, especially for this time. So big, in fact, that he has to choose not one, but three major generals, three top men to oversee all the other commanders. He picks his best guys. He picks Joab. He picks Joab's brother, Abishai. And he picks the newcomer that we read about last week, the the friend that God had provided, Ittai the Gittite. And he puts those three men in charge of of a force of thousands, probably tens of thousands, if not maybe up to 100,000 men. Uh, He knows, and this is the truth of it, Absalom also has a force of that great size coming at him from Jerusalem into the desert. And so he knows he's got to be prepared. He's preparing for battle. Uh, The battle's so serious that David himself cannot go out to fight. He wants to, but these three generals tell him not to, to, to instead stay behind the safe walls of the city, to observe things and to send reinforcements and help if need be. That's what David's doing. Now notice what David is saying. You find this there in verse 5. What did David say to the troops as they went out? Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now, okay, I've never served in the military. Okay, full disclosure. Uh, I know some of y'all have, and you know this way better than I would ever know it. But I imagine that this is not commonly the speech to the men and women who are going out to the front line. Right? I'm pretty sure this speech has never occurred. Hey, y'all, go out and fight hard, but fight gentle. (laughs) Go easy on the enemy. Uh, Spare them. Be gentle. You think that's ever been said? In any battle, in any war ever? I mean, don't you see a conflict here? David is conflicted inside. And you see that by his actions and his words. On the one hand, he knows that his son Absalom has done a very bad thing. 
in rebelling against him, he's put the whole nation at risk. The whole nation of Israel is at risk. The very purposes of God to establish his kingdom in Israel are at risk. And so he knows he's got to have an army to withstand the evil. He's got to go in the direction of justice. But at the same time, and I think all of us can relate here, especially if you're a parent, you can relate to this. At the same time, he wants to show nothing but mercy because he loves his son. He's raising an army of hundreds of thousands. At the same time, he's calling for gentleness. And then the story doesn't get any better because in verses 6 to 8, the actual verse is about the battle itself. Um, the victory is clearly in whose favor? Who wins? David, overwhelmingly. It says that David defeated them in the forest of Ephraim. And that forest, by the way, was a, some kind of forest. Uh, this was, uh, today, it's actually a national park in the, in the nation of Jordan, this forest. And, and it's very mountainous. It's rocky. It's got vines. It's got streams. It's got lakes. It's treacherous. That's where they were fighting. And that day, over 20,000 men died, and more of them died by forest than died by sword. Now think about it. Who's in charge of the forest? God, right? And he's in charge of the sword too, but he's in charge of the forest even more directly, right? And so what does this show? What should this have shown to David? God is... With me, and God is against the evil that Absalom is doing. I ought to be against it too. And yet, what does David do? How does he respond? He just weeps. He cries. He's, he's torn between the right and the wrong, or the right and wanting to show leniency to the son that he loves. Uh, Absalom himself is captured by forest. I love this part of the story because what are the chances of this? Uh, this is proof of the Lord's providential hand. Uh, Absalom was riding on his mule. And just to give you a little idea of the, the fleet of transportation that a king would have in the ancient world, the mules were for everyday driving. The horses were for war driving. So Absalom is in his everyday vehicle. Uh, one writer says he's the aristocrat driving in his Rolls Royce far away from the front line, and yet it tells you it happened that he met some of David's guys. Now, anytime in the Bible you read, it happened, or it just so happened, how should you read that? It didn't just so happen, right? Uh, this is a tongue-in-cheek way of describing God's hidden hand, his intervention. It just so happened that on his mule, Back behind safe, the safe lines, he sees David's guys, and he starts darting. I mean, his mule goes, goes as fast as a mule can go. And his head, including that glorious head of hair, gets caught between two giant limbs of an oak tree, and he's hanging there between heaven and earth. Now, don't take pride in your hair, y'all, <laughs> right? That's lesson number one. Don't do it, because it can, it can be your downfall. <clears throat> I'm not biased at all. <laughs> but the real lesson here is this. God is after Absalom. And when God is after you, anything can get you. I mean, this is like, remember those movies, Final Destination? Remember those? Wasn't that the name of the movies where people die in crazy ways back when I was in high school? This is like that. I mean, this is a rare way 
to get captured. And yet the Lord is working in an unseen way. David ought to have been able to say, God, I, I appreciate your justice as well as your mercy. But David is unable to make a decision. He's unable to make a decision. And he is like we are in so many situations. Parents, do you ever struggle between justice and mercy with your kids? Do you ever struggle between laying down the law and enforcing the consequences and loving your kids and showing them how much you love them and appreciate them? Isn't that a tough thing? Attention that you feel every day. Uh, bosses at work, if, you, if you're in charge of other people at your job, do you ever feel that tension? Enforcing the rules and also trying to be a friend, trying to be a, a confidant. It, it's really hard. This has not gotten any easier with the years that have passed since David and us. Justice and mercy seem to human beings to be total opposites, irreconcilable. And yet, this is the question that all of us have to face if we are going to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If you think the biggest problem in the Bible is how can a merciful God judge sinners, you have the problem of the Bible backwards. Let me say it again. If you think the biggest problem in the Bible is how can a merciful God judge people for their sin, you've got the problem exactly backwards from the way the Bible puts it. The Bible puts the problem this way. How can a just God forgive any sinner and show mercy to any sinner? That's how great sin is. That's how offended the perfect holiness of God is with all human sin. There is no sympathy in the Bible with evil. And there's no sympathy in the Bible with those who fail to, refuse to repent of their evil. None. There's none. The Bible teaches you how to have sympathy with God more than you have sympathy with yourself. And actually, you can't be a Christian. And you actually aren't a real Christian if you haven't moved from having primarily sympathy with yourself to having sympathy with God in the matter of justice and mercy. That's the very first step of the gospel. And we live in a culture that is so against this. I mean, think about how popular it is not only to have hero movies, but nowadays we have villain movies. We can't just make a movie about Batman. We had to make one about Joker, right? Not just Sleeping Beauty, but Maleficent. And we have to make these villains so sympathetic and so, you know, oh, man, haven't they had a hard life? And I see why they did the bad that they did. No. Evil's evil. And the Bible says it's evil. And the Bible wants us to learn how to take God's side. We've seen this week after week in David's life. We've got to learn to take God's side. When we downplay sin, because we're sympathetic with ourselves, when we downplay the perfection of God's holiness because we have no sympathy with God, we, we lose the ability to hear the gospel. We lose the ability to hear the good in the good news. And so here's Absalom. Look at him. Look at him riding his mule. Look at him happening upon David's uh, soldiers by, quote, accident. Look at him getting hung in a tree and hanging there shamefully. And there you see it. That is just an example of what God will do to every enemy that fails to repent. His death, one writer says, is a death of a man under a curse. 
The Bible says in Deuteronomy and in Galatians, we read it earlier, cursed is every man who hangs in a tree. Cursed also is the man whose body is covered with heaps of stones in his death. Both of those happen to Absalom. His death is cursed. And it shows, this author says, the lot of all who at any time set themselves against God's kingdom, against God's chosen king, and against his people without repenting. Behold what God thinks of sin by watching Absalom hang in a tree. And don't have sympathy with it. And yet here we are, aren't we, just like David? There's nobody in the room that's going to fault David for being broken up over his son. We, we feel it, don't we? If you don't feel it, you're not human this morning. If you don't feel the tear between mercy and justice, oh, it's right down the middle of the human heart. And the Bible in large measure is written just so that we can understand the answer to that dilemma. All right, that's the first thing. That's the dilemma. It's always with us. But secondly, I want you to look at how human beings try to solve it. And there are two characters right in the middle of the story who try to solve it in their own way. One goes one direction, one goes the other. Joab to the left, David to the right. All right, let's look at what Joab does. Uh, verses 9 through 16. Joab uh, is told that uh, this man saw Absalom hanging in the oak tree. And what does Joab say? What? You saw Absalom hanging in the tree and you didn't kill him? And then there's this debate, right, because the guy is really loyal to David, and this just shows you really how David has really put his men in a bad spot by sending them out to battle Absalom and at the same time telling them, be gentle with Absalom. They've really cre he's created a conflict in his soldiers. And he's like, how can I do this? Because if I do this, I win the battle. But if I do this, I'm also going against the king's word. So what am I supposed to do? And Joab in verse 14 does what I do often in these situations. I won't waste time talking to you anymore. Let me take matters into my hands. I'm not going to sit around and talk about being gentle or being kind anymore. I got no time for that. Give me my javelins. And he takes not one but three and it says he drove three javelins through Absalom's heart while he was still hanging on to life in the tree. And then, okay, after you kill your enemy three times, what's the next thing you should do? Kill him ten more times. This is what Joab did, right? He says, all right, I, I threw three javelins through his heart. My ten guys, y'all go do it too. And so they threw him down from the tree and struck him. And they also killed him. Now, so, this, so Absalom has now died 13 times. This reminds me of that time, you know, and I don't mean this in any political way, but that time Grady Judd said, we didn't shoot more because we ran out of bullets. Remember that? That's a famous, and it was so popular in Polk County because we all love that, right? And, and secretly in our heart, we are thinking the same thing about Absalom. Good. Good. Joab did the right thing. I mean, kill him 13 times. Full justice. Blood. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But is it right? Is it right? Is there a time when you should not consider mercy at all in your equation of justice? I just raised the question. 
Now look at the second guy, David. What does he do? Well, David is told by the Cushite. This is now in verse 31 of chapter 18 and following. The Cushite, who's an Ethiopian man, who's joined David's army, a foreigner who's become an Israelite. He says, your son Absalom is safe, yes, but he's safe in the grave. And may all your enemies be like that. And David responds, how? Weeping. Torn apart, deeply moved, he went up to his chamber and he wept. Oh, my son Absalom, 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 my son Absalom, 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 my son. He covers his face, a sign of shame. And he weeps, and he does it publicly. So publicly that it starts to discourage everybody because it says the victory day became a mourning day for all of Israel because David couldn't pull it together. Now, okay, we we root for Absalom or Joab on one hand because, yes, 13 times, good. And we also can fully understand David Wouldn't we all be heartbroken in David's shoes? Wouldn't we all want to weep like this? Wouldn't we all not care who heard it? And yet, I ask the question again, is it right? Is it right? What you have here are the two strategies of most of us as human beings at trying to solve the dilemma of justice and mercy. The strategies are these. Justice without mercy, an overindulgence in justice, or overindulgence in mercy without considering the need for justice. And in both cases, Joab and David, who are the most famous and popular and actually the most powerful men in Israel, set the nation on a collision course with disaster by doing it. It's only the grace of God that stops this story from becoming a disaster in the end. Because one man is all mercy and one man is all justice and they can't get it to come together. I mean, just imagine. And again, I don't mean this in any political way. I'm I'm not referring to any particular president. But imagine there was a president whose son was guilty of murder, maybe even in several states. Imagine that president publicly calling for no judgment or punishment on his son. What would the nation do? Would you call that a crisis? Well, imagine on the other side, some random mobster comes up and guns the president's son down in the middle of the street. What would happen then? Also a public crisis. Uh, In neither scenario is justice actually served, and in neither scenario is mercy actually acknowledged. And it would lead to sure chaos and disaster. Now, think about your own life again. Parents, which one are you? Employers, which one are you? Um, Friends, which one are you? Are you the Joab? I don't have time to waste talking to you. Give me the spear, and I'll drive it through. And I got 12 more behind it. (laughs) Right? Is that you? Scorched earth policy. Or are you the David? Overindulging, never standing up for what's right, just weeping over the pain. Which one are you? 
I think most of us can determine. And if you don't know the answer, by the way, just ask your spouse later. (laughs) Or ask a close friend, and they'll tell you which one you are. Either way, you are failing to do what God is calling you to do as a man or as a woman. I want you to go with me to Micah chapter 6. And if you have the Pew Bible, this is uh, 731, page 731, Micah 6. And you have here a famous description of how God wants his people to live. Micah 6, starting in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Is that what God wants? With calves a year old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Listen to this. He has told you, O man. Uh, raise your hand if you are an old man in the room. That's everybody. Women, you raise your hand. You're an old man. In the Bible, man is just human being, right? Oh, human being, God has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and, not or, and to love kindness or mercy or love or pardon or forgiveness, and to walk humbly with your God. The call of God is balanced between these two things. He wants his people not just to be justice people, but to be justice and mercy people. Not just mercy people, but mercy and justice people. Because that's who he is. And listen, we're just like David, we're just like Joab. We're going to fail at this regularly. Please don't expect that you're going to go out and be perfect at this, even if you start thinking about it consciously. You're going to go out realizing how bad you are at this if you think about it consciously. But that's why that last phrase is in there. You do it by walking humbly with God. You do it by recognizing that it's only God who can perfectly bring these two things together and that you're just his student. Uh, You're just uh, his understudy trying to learn how to do what God does. Loving justice, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. If David or Joab had just stopped for a minute to pray, had just stopped for a minute to think about both sides rather than just one side or the other, things could have been different. But they were so focused on the one side of the dilemma and on the other. Which one do you tend to get locked in on? That leads us to our last thing, and this is where we want to end today. How does God tie up all these knots? How does he solve the problem? We're supposed to look to God. What does he do? And I want to draw your attention to the speech, two speeches. The speech of the Cushite in chapter 18, starting in verse 31. And then the speech of Joab in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. All right, I want you to see both of those, the the Cushite and Joab. And what they are, excuse me, what they are is kind of like job descriptions of what we need someone to do to solve the dilemma. So when a company posts a job out there and they put the job description, this is what we're hiring this role and this is what this role does. Uh, What are they saying about all the things in that list in the job description by posting it? 
Well, they're saying that they need it, and they need it because why? It's pretty simple. They don't have anybody to do it, or they don't have enough people to do it, right? That's the whole reason why you take a list of things and you say, this is what we're hiring. This is what we need. There's an empty space. And the speeches of the Cushite and of Joab become a, a sort of job description of what we need from somebody who's going to come in and make this right. Bring justice and mercy back to one another to where they can now kiss. To where, to where they can be united together and not separated. And so the Cushite, he comes in verse 31 to, to David and he says, Good news, gospel. I've got the gospel for my lord the king. For the Lord has what? Delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose against you. God has delivered you. And the king's response is, okay, is Absalom safe? How's Absalom? And the Cushite, he understands. I mean, isn't this such a good thing about the Bible too that often the outsider understands better than the insider and God uses the outsider to show up the insider so that we get humble and so here's this Ethiopian man who isn't an Israelite by birth, and yet he's come in from the outside, and he gets it better than the king. He says to David, yes, Absalom's safe in the grave, which is where he belongs. May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Here's what the Cushite understood. He understood that when God raises his people up, he must also bring his enemies down. When Israel gets saved from Egypt, the Egyptians must get drowned in the Red Sea. When Noah gets saved in the flood, all the rest of the world must go under the waters. When the Israelites take the promised land, the Canaanites must be judged for their sin. And David, for you to be spared, your mortal enemy who wants to kill you must himself face justice. The Cushite knows it. As one writer says, we need to stop praying, deliver us from evil, unless we also yearn for its destruction. Listen, otherwise we're like a patient ready to undergo cancer surgery who pleads with his doctor to deal gently with my cancer. Who urges the surgeon to get out most of it, but definitely to leave a tad, since it is a part of me and I would hate to lose all of it. This is what the writer says. There will always be those, I suppose, who think that peace can be made between Christ and Antichrist. But God's people know the Cushite is right. The preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. Well, that look at Joab. Joab's speech is just as profound. Even though Joab's not the best person in the story, he's got a good words. Uh, his speech is the longest sentence in the whole book of First and Second Samuel. As you read it, you just get the sense that Joab comes in and just starts laying into David. He doesn't stop for a period or for a comma or a semicolon. He's just boom, 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 boom. You have shamed your soldiers, the people who, cost their, who, who risk their lives for your life and for the life of the whole nation. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You make it clear that you care more about your enemy's son than you do all the sons of the other people who've risked their lives to save the kingdom. David, you should be ashamed of yourself. Uncover your head, wash your face, and get out there and have a press conference and tell them how grateful you are. That's a good speech. 
Because here what you have are the two job descriptions of what it takes for someone to solve the dilemma between justice and mercy. You need someone who not only is willing to rescue, but to judge. To rescue by delivering and bringing down what opposes the kingdom of God. And listen, you need somebody who is willing to save the people even if it costs them their only son. And who is that? Who is that but the Lord your God? David was not willing for his son to die even though his son was his enemy. The Bible says God so loved the world that it pleased him to give his son as an offering for us all. And the Lord Jesus Christ came in a way very similar to Absalom. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree, a cursed and shameful death. He was laid in a pit and a stone was rolled over it. The most shameful of deaths Jesus Christ took. Why? So that God could reconcile with his sinful people without doing harm to his justice. Do you see what God has done? Do you see how beautifully contrived the gospel is? How beautifully planned? God is perfect in justice. He will never compromise it. Not one bit. And he's also beautiful and perfect in grace. And he proves it at the cross. Where he gave Christ the son. Where justice and mercy kissed each other. And if you and I are believers in that Jesus, if we have been saved by that atonement, what that means is we are now in a school of learning how to be both gentle and fair at the same time. We're in school learning from Jesus how to be gentle. Jesus, when he spoke against people and when he acted against people, which he did, he did so in love. He did so with good intentions. He did so with gentleness when he needed to be gentle. But we also find in Jesus a willingness to stand against sin, to call it what it is. Pharisees, you're hypocrites, right? Herod, you're a fox. These are the words of Jesus. Priest, you're whitewashed walls, beautiful on the outside, wicked on the inside. Jesus knew how to oppose things that were wrong, but he knew how to do it without compromising grace. And we can do the same thing. Not perfectly, but we can learn if we will walk humbly with the one who willingly gave up his son. When God gave Jesus on the cross and when Jesus hung there suspended between heaven and earth. Can you imagine what Christ and what God felt, if we can speak that way, what what they went through? As that great act was committed, which would fully satisfy justice and pour out rivers of mercy, rivers of mercy. We often call the the tree that Jesus died on the cross. That's right. It, It was a cross. But did you know? Then in the New Testament, the more common word is tree. In fact, in the book of Acts, the word cross never appears. Ever. When the apostles preached, they always called it the tree. And this is why. 
to know that the death of Jesus was that justice-taking death, that shame-in-our-place death, which would set and reconcile sinners with God and set them free in a way that perfectly preserved God's commitment to what is right. Amen? Let's come to him today and ask him to help us walk humbly with him.